Sam Clements and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. This is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this podcast. Today we're joined by fellow podcaster, actor and Tom Waits superfan Sam Pay. Hello Sam. Hello Sam. What a great name. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. We should uh, we should maybe refer to each other by our surnames as much as possible. How are you doing Clements? I'm very good Pay. Thank you very much for joining us. You've been kind enough to let me on your podcast Song by Song. Yes. Which is such a genius concept for a podcast and also sounds a little bit mad. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a really terrible idea. Um, uh, song by song, the the conceit is we're going through the entire back catalogue of singer songwriter Tom Waits's discography, listening to each track one a week, and we have a little chat about that. We have a little chat about some other music. We go off on various odd tangents, and we've also talked about some of his films. So we've had we've had Sam and your fellow podcaster Simon Renshaw on to talk about. Well, you know, gravelly-voiced singers and their uh, contribution and interest in Hollywood. I never really asked you this when I was on the show, but where did this idea come from? I, it was it, Martin's idea initially. The only way you can get to talk about culture at the moment is either through the macro or the micro. So we decided to do both by going through an entire artist, but in very, very fine detail. It's just a... It, we used to have an awful lot of conversations about film and music and that kind of thing when I was younger. And so having some kind of structure where you can sit down and talk about things that you're interested in felt like a uh, fun idea. Very much like, for example, choosing and somewhat arbitrary uh, runtime film length to uh, to then discuss cinema with obviously you know you guys are, are experts in this now having done the podcast uh, for so <laughs> We've long done but... it a lot i don't think we're experts yeah. <laughs> when when i heard you were doing the tom waits podcast i was like oh that's good because he's he's written a lot of stuff he's in a lot of films that'll keep him going for ages now you're in the thick of it are you wishing you chose someone who maybe wasn't as prolific some kind of some kind of middle ground the um, the the thing that we've threatened to do is uh, go on to another artist and the only one that me and martin share as well is they might be giants, and their back catalogue is literally twice as long as, oh, wow. uh, as Tom Waits's. I think if you if you were to do anything shorter, then it might feel a bit cursory. So I think you know a, a, a tight three hundred and fifty episode run is plenty for, for for any man. I feel and and any and any audience as well. <laughs> <laughs> you do cover films on song by song, mm. but you know you're also you're a guy who loves movies. I was actually a film student before I went into acting and all the other various things I do. I studied film theory and history down in Canterbury and for a long time I thought I was going to be a film journalist or a film academic but I've I've, I've always had an interest in cinema and and culture and uh, media and that kind of thing much more than human interaction definitely <laughs> and when you choose a film do you ever think about runtime or is that something that's way 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 down the pecking order of things that are important to you I do think about runtime I, I remember a lecture of mine we were watching Magnificent Seven at nine o'clock in the morning and she came out and said okay guys this is Magnificent Seven it's 123 minutes long and she sort of paused and said, that's all you need to know. In fact, that's all you ever really need to know, you know, the, the name and the runtime. It's difficult to pace yourself if you think it's going to be 90 minutes and actually turns out to be a three-hour epic. I'm, I'm a bit at odds with you. I feel that while, while on occasion I do appreciate a short runtime, mm. 
I feel like the 90 minutes thing is kind of arbitrary. Even even guests who have said like a comedy, you know, shouldn't be, you know, longer than 90 minutes, a two hour comedy is bloated. I feel like it's a more, it's a more flexible thing. If it takes 90 minutes to tell the story and do the job, then that's great. But some, some stories need a bit more detail, you know, U- Ulysses, you'd struggle to pack into an hour and a half. So I feel like there's a, there's value in a longer film as well. But I have a I have a little five year old kid, and you have to get up early. So so yeah, I do factor in on time <laughs> <laughs> on occasions. When we asked you to come on the podcast, uh, did you have a particular film in mind, or you know, was this quite a, a tough decision to choose a film to submit for the ninety minutes or less film festival? It was a quite a tough decision. I I, I scanned through an awful lot of IMDb lists. There's actually a category on Now TV at the moment, ninety minutes or less. Oh my god! Um, for this uh, <laughs> short, yeah, you should do that for for research on other episodes. <laughs> but I wanted to talk about something that and, and and people who know the song by song might assume that all I would want to talk about is any Tom Waits films that have a 90 minute or less runtime there is one actually we might we might try and do that at some stage in the future but my eventually what I landed on was trying to talk about something which I have uh, enthusiasm for love for and also a certain amount of experience of so I thought I would lean on on something that in, in, in a certain way I've been preparing for and researching for for the last 25 years of my life. For my 90-minute film, I have chosen Batman, Mask of the Phantasm. In a gloomy Gotham city, the police are puzzled by the murder of some of the town's most notorious gangsters by a mysterious masked man. And suspicion falls on the caped crusader. However, Bruce Wayne has other things on his mind. Andrea Beaumont, the girl he proposed to years ago, is back in Gotham City and keen to rekindle their romance. As Batman investigates the trail, leads him to his arch enemy, the Joker. Dum dum dum. <laughs> I mean, yeah, okay. Like, I, I, it, it there's, the there's some key touchstones yeah. in there. That's that's fair. They had a, a very crucial plot point there. Mysterious masked man. I bet the copy editor was keen to just throw that in, okay. add in, add it to the film. <laughs> I think at this point we should mention that this will be a spoiler-filled chat, and mm. that's particularly relevant to this film because it is a legitimate mystery. Yeah, this is like a film noir, you know, in the Batman sort of world. So if you want to see this film and appreciate, you know, all of its twists and turns, please pause right now and spend seventy-six minutes it's watching what I think is a really excellent Batman film. Yeah, it's really exciting. One of the interesting things about the film is that it, it doesn't, while well, it has the Joker as sort of like a, a big part of the climax, the key character, the Phantasm, was created for this film. And unlike almost any other Batman TV or, or film thing, there's very few characters that were actually created sort of like from new cloth. Mm. So to not only put the Phantasm at the core of the story, but also like put the name of the phantasm right up front is kind of a strange marketing idea, if nothing else. I think it's a good way, because you're right, this is a brand new character, and they don't actually say phantasm in the film no, at never, all. Never. So I think you have to have Mask of the Phantasm somewhere kind of prominent, so the audience can sort of get to know this brand new character. Because the so this came off the back of the animated series, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, which was hugely popular, which sort of in turn came off of the Tim Burton live action films, yeah. which reimagined Batman not as the Adam West that a lot of audiences knew, but as the Dark Knight, the 80s version, yeah. this sort of grim uh, hero who's sort of caught in this moral maze. So so it sort of it came off a thing, off a thing, off a thing. <laughs> and this actually came to cinemas uh, when it was originally made for straight to VHS 
but it happened at the end of the 65 episode run yeah. of Batman the Animated Series Series 1 which is incredible length for a TV show it's really <laughs> impressive and the, and the series then went on to not only do I think there's a total of like 110 odd episodes of Batman and then a long run of Superman the Animated Series there's mm. Batman Beyond there's the Justice League cartoon uh, it's uh, the sort of the shared animated universe DC animated universe was an uh, an incredible feat logistically but also i think maintains a really high level of quality and phantasm i think it's legitimate it was a good choice for the the studio to say we should give this a wider release this is a quality production and it's got a great cast they were using you know actors who were already performing in the the tv series mm. the style is really exciting let's let's put it on a bigger stage it, it turned out that it wasn't a huge success in theaters a lot of matinee showings and didn't really recoup its uh, its advertising budget but it has been a success as a straight to video i and i think it's uh, for, for the longest time it was considered to be the best batman film at least you know in my nerdish circles what really struck me re-watching this film is how grown up this is like it's a spin-off of a saturday morning tv show which already is quite adult but in this film they really lean into for me it just felt like classic film noir it is i, I think it's drawing on a lot of that sort of older element. i mean the the imagery of the, the series is like a view of the future as seen from the 1940s the mm. art deco stylings yeah there's loads of uh, things that you, you might assume located in the 1940s and obviously they're drawing on the the fleischer superman cartoons which were being produced at that time but there's also enough modern technology and you know characters who are using not just batman's incredible toys but you know little touches like uh, phones in cars and mm. that kind of thing to locate it in some sort of timeless space yeah but then this film really draws into that thing by making it effectively the first half of it is a mob boss crime story and not only a mob boss crime story but also one that is being told in two different time periods we start off with the the phantasm killing and taking out various crime bosses in their their later years in kind of full-on ways as well like you know being thrown out of buildings in cars and uh, having gravestones pushed on top of them and then you cut back to the very earliest days of bruce wayne just before he becomes batman and the younger days of these mob bosses and through these two time periods you start to you're invited to piece together who the phantasm might be what what their eventual goals are and it's it's kind of a good thriller i think it's kind of a good mystery and for the longest time i, I was admittedly watching this with my five-year-old daughter and she was convinced she, by the time we got to the eventual reveal of the phantasm she knew exactly who it was and she was entirely wrong ah. uh, and i was kind of thrilled by that i i don't recall whether i was drawn in or not when i first watched it but it's a it's a good twist it's a good twist i've seen this film before and i sort of forgot who it was and then like 20 minutes in i was like oh is it yeah. okay yeah, and then you start no. looking for stuff and there are like subtle clues in there Apparently when they made this film, which they had only eight months to actually produce because they were making it on a straight-to-video kind of schedule and then they got bumped up to the, the sort of cinema, they, they, they went, they were, it was like, they were all very conscious of spoilers getting out and like I didn't even consider spoilers in the 90s because it was pre-internet and social yeah. media, but they were all very, everything had like code names and um, Stacey Keach, who voices a character in the film, also voices the Phantasm yeah. to hide the identity of the real Phantasm. But then the studio also put out a range of 
your toys which totally reveal who the phantasm yes of was. course the, the, the phantasm <laughs> with swappable heads to yes. reveal the true identity <laughs> apparently in the 90s it was very popular to have accessories for toys and helmets that could come off and the, the phantasm's mask was not on top of the phantasm's That's body an- another reason why they had to name the phantasm somewhere otherwise you couldn't make a toy out of the character yeah. you know what's the value there Andrea Beaumont Bruce Wayne I know the boy billionaire so tell me, with all that money and power, how come you always look like you want to jump off a cliff? Why should you care? I don't. Mother was asking. I love that we get a brand new character in this film, Andrea Beaumont, and she has a complete story in this film. She's one of the the, the best love interests, I think, that the, the TV show did. But I would argue that most of the on-screen depictions of Batman have given us... I obviously had a huge crush on both Kim Basinger and Michelle Pfeiffer from the the Burton films. But other than that, I can't say that I warmed massively to Katie Holmes. And Maggie Gyllenhaal is an excellent actress, but again, didn't really feel like she was given enough space or whether the story between the two of them was significant. And in the comics as well, there haven't been really, with the exception of like the endless flirtation between Batman and Catwoman, mm. which for, for readers of current comics, Tom King's run on Batman, which is making trying to work out whether these two could ever have a serious relationship. Fantastic comics, everyone, who really, really good. I won't talk about that. All of the relationships, Silver St. Cloud and Vicky Vale, they've never really had, like, strength and muscularity in and of themselves, partly because they were mostly appearing in the 50s, 60s, 70s when treatment of women in the comics was pretty, well, I mean, still is, but was pretty tokenistic. But Andrea Beaumont, voiced by Dana Delaney, who would then go on to play really well, Lois Lane in the uh, the Superman and Justice League cartoons. She's kind of fun. She's kind of confident. She feels like she's a match, uh, more than a match for Bruce Wayne. And then in the present day setting where she comes back to Gotham after being gone for however many years, I don't think it ever specifies, but being gone for a long time, she works out who... Bruce Wayne must be. She puts two and two together and says Batman must be. And then she seems she's written and is performed in such a way where you you go, she she can handle herself. She's not cowed, she's not intimidated, she's not scared by the sort of the 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 stature and the 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 strike fear into the hearts of the criminal stuff of Batman. She just wants him to like own his shit and and get on with living a proper life and stop hiding behind the excuses in her, her mind that run his life it's a really i think it's a really good performance and quite kind of maybe not wall-to-wall well written but mostly slightly better written than you would imagine would be necessary for a, a love interest in a uh a straight to video animated batman show yeah i feel like that's that's probably one of the big takeaways from this you know like they could have got away with a very average film mm. and it probably would have made exactly the same amount of money but it's made by people who love the character love the universe and given the opportunity to tell a story over a longer period of time all of the episodes are about 20 minutes long they get to you know in their mind you know this is their citizen kane this is their lawrence of arabia they can tell an epic story mm. and it feels epic. Well, I, I think Citizen Kane is a good touchstone because it does do that kind of Citizen Kane or It's a Wonderful Life flashing back. People don't mess with the origins of Batman too much. It's a pretty straight line from, you know, 
the the mask of Zorro and the events in Crime Alley to the bat crashing through the window and he becomes this Avenger of the Night. But this shows him struggling. This shows him slightly lacking confidence, lacking ability mm. and lacking the key idea. And the other thing it shows as well is the uh, is this this concept that in a, a brilliant a really great scene I think where he goes I I've I've got this woman in my life I've got this idea that I could be happy. He says things like, you know, it doesn't hurt so much anymore. Mm. I could give money to the police. I could other people could take on this responsibility. I need it to be okay that mm. I don't ruin my life over this thing. And the 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 presence of his parents in their well, I mean, endlessly looking at their picture on the wall and the gravestone. There's a lot of looking at pictures on yeah. the walls. <laughs> and then Andrea leaving. He's kind of the catalyst for him to go, no, this there is nothing left for me. I must become this person. I must become this sort of like uh, cipher and it'll be, that'll be all my life's about. And I think that's kind of significant for, for at least in as much as a guy putting on a mask and tights and jumping around the roofs can be significant. <laughs> it's Andrea. She's the new thing. It's mm. Bruce Wayne being a human who could potentially love another human is the thing the storytellers are interested in. Uh, Marty Pascal, who apparently wrote an awful lot of the flashback sequences, uh, the, these were all divvied up between Alan Burnett, Marty Pascal, and uh, Paul Dini mostly, I think deserves an awful lot of credit for sort of not doing a Batman story, for doing a sort of like a... Somebody, somebody I was uh, reading described it as a little bit like a uh, Billy Wilder romantic thing, but with a slightly more punching. <laughs> uh, and obviously, at this stage, there wasn't a, an origin for Batman. The whole film borrows reasonably heavily from the, the comic story Batman Year One and Batman Year Two. The Reaper is the character in Year Two, which sort of functions in a very similar way to the Phantasm does. The sequence where Batman is accused of murder, where he's being chased through the, the building site, and then has to sort of abandon the cowl in order to escape is straight out of Frank Miller and David Mazzucchelli's year one comic. And I think there's an animated adaptation of that that they've done subsequently. So you can sort of do a side-by-side -side comparison. And also uh, very much used by Batman Begins as well. Again, the, which was the first real live-action origin for Batman that we got on the big screen. There's lots of uh, talk actually around this film and Batman Begins how people involved in the production not explicitly chris nolan or sort of the key creatives but other people working on the film looked at phantasm for influence mm. which i'm really interesting like it's resonated you know across sort of you know the batman sort of uh, showbiz landscape well, structurally it's not that different you know love interest and uh, abandoned and then coming back together again the sort of halting first steps finding the cowl the resistance of the police and then the belief uh, gordon has in him there's 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 more than one similarity there it's so good to see you and Miss Beaumont together again. Might one ask what this bodes for your alter ego? I'm not sure, Alfred. Everything's happening so fast. So much has changed. You still love each other. It's true. I love her. Maybe after this is settled, maybe then... I'm sure they would have wanted you to be happy, sir.
because it's animation, it was made on such a short time frame. There's loads of directors of this, various sequences directors, and, and they're all sort of credited. I think there's six directors in total. Some of them are also some of the writers. <laughs> yes. There's also a notable exception. The, the two things that I want to talk about briefly is the animation style, which I think is worth noting, particularly for this early 90s period, which is like right at the, the beginning of the Disney Renaissance with some fantastic feature films with incredibly polished visuals. Mm. And this leans in a very different direction. It's nowhere near as polished. And I think you can see even certain sequences have more finesse. But there's an awful lot of detail being thrown in. Even the sequences that uh, don't really work. There's a nice bit uh, in the graveyard. Someone trips over a wheelbarrow. And the animation doesn't quite sync up. People's feet don't quite connect to the ground. But there's an ambition there. Because when the wheelbarrow is tilted over, you can see the wheel continuing to spin. And that's not a detail that is in anyone's interest to spend time animating. And you can see how they've sort of tokened it. But it's in the interest of the story. It's in the interest of the atmosphere that you're creating. This sort of like squeaky wheel turning the idea of some figure relentlessly coming towards you. I think that there's an ambition to the to the animation. And also continuing the, the sort of the very heavy blacks, characters shrouded in darkness. But the other thing that I think is relevant to talk about in terms of the direction is... So much of this film works not in spite of the animation, but it, it, it adds to the animation because it's an incredible voice cast with a really great performance. Andrea Romano, who was the voice director for an awful lot of the Batman show and beyond, right the way into, you know, the mid-2000s, is not credited as a director on this. She's... Uh, do we know what it is? It's a, a voice She's supervisor, voice supervisor. <laughs> which is a huge oversight because it works so much because of Kevin Conroy, because of Mark Hamill, because of Dan Delaney, and also some of the other voice actors. I think that Abe Vigoda, who plays the, the mob boss, Sal Valestra, Commissioner Gordon, Bob Hastings, the, the guy who plays Alfred Ephraim Zimbalis Jr. These are like kind of iconic as much as the visuals mm. are. And I can't talk enough about how brilliant Mark Hamill is as the Joker and the the freedom and the guidance that Romano apparently gave him all the way through that there's no such thing as too big that you really have to sell it that you know he's a, the most extraordinary like you know gaudy vaudeville and character that Hamill also manages to root in genuine darkness well she yeah she's part of the, that sort of brain trust you know she was there at the casting she was there when kevin conroy was cast apparently he has no idea what batman was at the time he remembers the adam west tv show <laughs> and they said no we're not doing the adam west tv show do something else and then he came up with this gravelly voice she was there at, when that note was given and uh, and yeah due to uh it's kind of a, a bit of bureaucracy really when the film got bumped up to a theatrical release different guilds and union rules came yeah, in of course and she wasn't allowed to be a director because she was not a member of the Directors Guild of America because of her voice work. So even though she is there directing these actors, doing this amazing work. In later shows, she's a she's a voice. She's a contributor. Oh, wow. Her and Bruce Tim show up as random voices in all sorts <laughs> of different shows. Did you know that the original casting for the Joker was Tim Curry? Oh my god, I did not know and that. He did some <laughs> he did some voice samples and apparently it wasn't quite working, so they went out and auditioned again and that's how Mark Hamill got the job. I think it's a good point to talk about the the, the cast and and sort of Hamill and, and the Joker's sort of uh, inclusion in this film mm. because as I say he doesn't come in until half an hour or so into this thing and and he's a fan favorite by this point that version of the Joker we'd so recently had Jack Nicholson's Joker in mm -hmm. in the Tim Burton film and it, it's quite daring to 
in another theatrical Batman film, <laughs> put the Joker in when I, there's an argument to be made that you probably don't need the Joker in this film. I think that, so it was originally apparently conceived as not including any of the core Batman rogues gallery. Mm. Uh, and I think it was a, a studio edict that we needed someone to, to sort of like pay it off. He's really useful because it puts in contrast the other villains in the film. The Phantasm is obviously front and centre, but that turns out to be a very clear revenge story. You also have all the mob bosses who are the victims of the Phantasm, mm. but it all gets refocused. You sort of like have a, 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 a reframing of everything that's going on because of the, the violence, the brutality and the kind of the nihilism of the Joker, which is, is not like delved into as much as Heath Ledger's is, say. But he's happy. He literally sets the world on fire. Like, you know, it's 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 a man who's happy to see the world burn. And it, the laugh is so scary. I, I think it's important. And, and at the end, the phantasm, I think that we have to reveal at some stage <laughs> that it turns out, shock horror, the surprise returning girlfriend actually turns out to be the phantasm. But sh her her journey to, to vengeance is sort of framed in a much less sinister way because you have this utter monster who is her final target. I hate that song. Gasp? Can it be? Old Sally the Weezer Velestra. Welcome, Paizon. <laughs> it's been a dog's age. Hello, Joker. Didn't mean to drop by unannounced. Oh, Salvatore, why so formal? Me, Casa Nostra, es su Casa Nostra. I think Shirley Walker is one of the, I mean, I don't think she's unsung. I think she is probably very celebrated for this, but one of the sung heroes of yes. the Batman animated show. <laughs> Let us join that, uh, that the, song. The score is absolutely iconic. And I think because it was a Saturday morning TV show, there are probably a bunch of people in their 30s now who can still hum that theme tune. Uh, yeah, I can. I can. And it's a big orchestra as well. It's, there's not much electronic stuff done. That's a proper that's a proper band playing proper music. I've been listening to the score since rewatching the film. And it's really, it, like, it's, it's a, you would say, like, there's definitely some nods to Elfman, but there's also nods to 40s, 30s science fiction. There's like pheromones in yeah, there. Yeah, sure. Like it's it, there's a lot of like fun, like kind of hokey stuff. Well, again, it's there. this image of the future seen from the location of the past, mm. and I think that makes a lot of sense when you're viewing Batman, which is very much uh, an anachronism. Uh, even in the 90s and has been gone through all sorts of different iterations but is still something that has a certain amount of not necessarily relevance but at least resonance with people you know needing that that or feeling they need that you know wish fulfillment character of you know the 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 guy who can strike back against the the bullies and the terrors and who would make something of themselves despite not necessarily being from another planet or being given, you know, a, a magic green ring or that kind of thing. He's someone who we could make ourselves into. And I think Phantasm is well located in the reality of that world, much more in a way than any of the big screen versions. There's so much fantasy in all of those mm. things that I feel more human connection in this. Yeah, with the, the live action ones, they've been really going for um, realism. You know, let's try and make it gritty and real. And in this, they celebrate the you know the, the science fiction in this in the animated show not in this film but you do see characters like clayface and killer croc who are you know they're these monsters literal monsters yeah which i quite like they just like really go for it and embrace it the thing that the films are is often i think they're mean mm. i think that i i love a lot of the films and i and i've i've, I've watched them a lot of times but 
Tim Burton's vision of Gotham is in the first one is is brutal you know there's 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 a lot of pain in all of these characters in returns it is about childhood trauma and then the Nolan stuff are they're relentlessly bleak there's no there's no victors there's no heroes like that's that's the theme of it so it it feels less to do with gritty realism and more gritty cynicism and I think that there's enough enthusiasm in all of the animated stuff Maybe not the more recent stuff, which I feel has gone slightly towards the Zack Snyder image of, yes. of what DC can be. But there's enough there's enough light light and life in it to make me to to, to give me an optimistic view even. There's one moment that I think is iconic and which I do think needs more heraldry, and that is the moment after Andrea leaves when Bruce has given up on his life and he puts on the the batman mask and turns to face alfred and in the vocal performance and in the animation i think in alfred you see something where you don't see the birth of batman you see the death of bruce wayne mm. and i think that is a grim and realistic or a grim and gritty moment where something inhuman arrives and I, that resonates with me much more than any of the other stuff even a lot of the the, the comic stuff because it's it's because of the vocal performance absolutely and it's a moment we've not whilst we might have seen batman putting the suit on for the first time the focus has been on him he's not done it in front of someone who can yes. react yes and what i love about that shot it's framed so you just see the back of bruce wayne he puts the cowl and the cape on and then he sort of turns around and, and the focus is on alfred's face My and alfred God. i feel like he's holding a tray and drops it because it's a saturday morning cartoon. yeah no exactly I don't know, yeah. <laughs> but he is horrified mm. and until then, Alfred's in comic relief. He's constantly trying to bring Bruce Wayne lemonade and he's making out with Andrea so he has to turn away, he's embarrassed. And this is the time you see Alfred actually have an emotion. Yeah. And and it's it's quite, for the character who's been so light for the whole film, to see him horrified by someone who we now know as a hero is it's quite yeah. a big thing. Like, that scene says a lot. It's parental. It's 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 lovely. So there we have it. Batman Mask of the Phantasm is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. Boom. Hooray! Thanks. As part of your commitment to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, or uh, we are going to... Oh, oh, absolutely, no. yeah. You have to read all the small prints. As part of uh, your selection of this, you also get to present this film to an audience at the film festival on the big screen. If you could do something to maybe, you know, set the scene for this or to dress the venue, maybe add a little bit of, a, of an event to the screening, what would you do? Short of having like a full Batman 89 Jack Nicholson Joker parade with balloons to a squirt deadly gas. It's quite difficult to imagine what, what could, uh, could set this appropriately. I think Tia Carrera has to be there singing not only her song but also doing the whole dum dum da da like sort of doing a vocal version of the, the main acapella, thing. Uh, I think version. that the uh, the the signal for the end of the film shouldn't be the lights coming up but uh, Mark Hamill's insane laughter to lead everyone out. I don't know. I one of the one of the things that I find interesting about this is that it was such a failure at the the cinema so maybe as part of the festival this has to be the the screening that nobody really shows up for and uh <laughs> but then afterwards goes oh yeah no that was quite good oh well we'll we'll, we'll rent it on dvd or we'll buy the blu-ray we'll, we'll find it on amazon prime about the, the yeah, screening <laughs> it's more it's more like a signal that we should watch this at home in the privacy of our own living room
If you could invite a special guest to the screening, maybe for a post-film Q&A or, or an introduction for the audience, who would you invite? I would love to have uh, Bruce Tim because I think Bruce Tim is a is uh, he's an incredible cartoonist, and I really enjoy his uh, the, the small amounts of comics stuff that he's done. The Batman Mad Love one shot that he drew that Paul Dini wrote should be in everyone's collection. It's an incredible little book. But I'd want Kevin Conroy. I think Kevin Conroy has has tried to step away from Batman on a number of occasions. And just when he thinks he's out, they pull him back in. He's my Batman. Mm. He's the voice that I have in my head when I read comics. I think he's shaped it. You know, as much as all of the other writers and directors, I think he shaped what Batman is for kind of a generation of people. So yeah, I'd want him to to come and uh, and try and quit being Batman again live for the uh, live for the the screening. We've talked a little bit about the sort of the how how condensed the story is, but could this film be longer than ninety minutes? Yes, do you think? I think it could. I would have liked the um, there to be more interaction between uh, Batman and the Phantasm because you don't really get to see them mm. go toe to toe. And I also feel like the the relationship between Andrea and Bruce, while it's lovely and while it's focused, I could have I could have spent more time in that relationship. I could have I would have had a good time. There's definitely something to be said about a you know a film that leaves you wanting more. But when when it is only seventy six minutes long, you're like, oh, go on, put ten more minutes. We've got, in. We've got fourteen. We've got fourteen <laughs> to play with. Come on, guys. <laughs> That's me. I guess you could add a significant amount of story and it'd still be well under and it'd be eligible for this festival. Yeah. Well, when it gets remade um, in a number of years, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll have the opportunity to see that. Yeah, the Zack Snyder four-hour live-action version oh, of Mask okay, of the Phantasm. Good, let's move on! <laughs> <laughs> So there we have it. Batman Mask of the Phantasm is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. We'll be screening this with Kevin Conroy in attendance and, and some mad cackling to signify when the film's about to start. Fantastic. <laughs> Sam, where can people find uh, more of your work online and listen to Song by Song Pod? Well, you can go to songbysongpodcast.com where we have all of the episodes lined up. We are currently finishing off Bone Machine and about to head into the Black Rider. So we're in the mid-90s. Very similar era to uh, Batman Muscle Phantasm actually maybe that this was an inspiration to uh, tom waits as well there's a new episode every week we've had some fantastic guests yourself included and lots of other music so uh, head to the website and see if there's any music to uh, tickle your fancy there and if people wanted to follow you on Twitter, stalk you on the internet, where stalk can they find the you? Not very much happens. I'm at Sam Pay, pretty unimaginative, but I got in early. And there's more happening at Song by Song Pod for the podcast. I will endeavour to be entertaining in either or both. Thank you for listening, and please do like, favourite, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your pod catcher of choice. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, leave us a review as an independent podcast. It really helps. And we're also available on Spotify. You can contact us on at 90 Min Film Fest on Twitter and Instagram, and you can look at our shiny new website, 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. The show is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements, and the show is edited by Luke Smith. The music is by Martin Austwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 